This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to P. Ramakrishnan on his new book, Intelligent Island, where he discussed the development of the information technology industry in Singapore and where the tech industry will evolve in the next decade. Hi, Rama. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm good. Looking forward to this conversation with you. I'm pretty happy to have you here because I've been seeing you and Glenn jet-setting across Asia-Pacific, talking to CIOs almost on a daily basis, right? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. It's kind of fun, actually. We're enjoying what we're doing right now. And there will be something that we will be talking about as we go along. So I am talking to P. Ramakrishna, Deputy CEO of the CIO Academy Asia, and also co-author of a very interesting book called Intelligent Island, which actually chronicles Singapore's IT journey in the last few decades and also why Singapore has chosen to embrace technology as a whole. But before that, Rama has a pretty interesting career and I wanted to start to get to know you better. How do you start your career? Okay, so let's go way back to the late 70s. I was fortunate enough to be uh, sent to Canada for my uh, university studies on my dad's scholarship, of course. (laughs) When I was there in Toronto, I was pretty clueless about what I should be doing. And so happened at that time, they were promoting computer science in a big way. And I thought it was something different. And lo and behold, I did four years of computer science in uh, York University in Toronto. Uh, graduated with a uh, honours degree in computer science and mathematics. From then on, got back to Singapore and started my career with the uh, Ministry of Defence. So you must be wondering why Ministry of Defence. <laughs> so at that time, in the early 80s, when I got back in Singapore, there were very few places which actually would be able to offer me something challenging, something that I could use from the computer science degree which I got in Canada. I think they offered me a a pretty good position with the systems and computers organization. It was part of the defense technology group. I didn't really think that I would stay in the public sector for too long, but I look back, I spent 16 years in Ministry of Defense. (laughs) Didn't really plan to do that, but you know, the job was really good. Enjoyed what I was doing. They gave me all the opportunities to, to play with technology and make a difference, actually, for the folks in the Ministry of Defense. And after 16 years in MINDEF, I moved on from there to join National Computer Board, another 15 years, which later transformed to IDA, Infocom Development Authority of Singapore. So, total of 31 years with the public sector. I left in uh, 2015 and I joined CIO Academy Asia. And since then, I've been with CIO Academy. So that's my career. So I guess in your career journey, given that you have been in civil service for a very long time, what are the interesting career lessons learned? Yeah, actually, to be very frank with you, there are reasons why actually I stayed with the government for 31 years. You know, looking back, I have absolutely no regrets. If I were to do it again, I would, (laughs) you know, because I was fortunate enough to work with good leaders, you know, and a lot of that was also covered in my book, The Intelligent Island, which uh, we'll talk about it uh, later. So in Ministry of Defense, I had the pleasure of working with visionary leaders like Philip Yeo, Tan Chin Nam, Lim Sui Se, Stephen Yeo, and the list goes on, you know. And 
these were the same people who later made a very big difference to the entire tech journey in Singapore. Very fortunate to have had experiences working with all of them, learned a lot from them. In some ways, they were like my mentors. Even up to today, when I look back, I think my career would have been different if I had not had that opportunity to work with all these people. And I, I would just probably add to say that Lim Si Se was also formerly the Minister of Manpower and he joins the government as a cabinet minister as well. That's right. Of course, uh, Philippe is probably most well-known to be the chairman of the Economic Development Board, which brought a lot of multinationals from all over the world into Singapore and subsequently became the chairman of the agency, uh, Science, Technology and Research, A-Star, they call it. That's right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I think in that part of it is pretty interesting. So now I know that you have a much more interesting career after you left civil service. And I'm pretty privileged to be given the opportunity to actually travel with some of the people with the CIO Academy Asia. So last year, I think we went to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. And where would I be if I got stranded together with our good friends, Dirk Bonleven from Red Hat, Eos of GIC and Tomasic, all at the same place? Maybe to help my audience, can you briefly describe what CIO Academy Asia does and what is your role and coverage there? So as I've mentioned earlier, when I left the uh, public sector in 2015, I was actually uh, doing some consultancy work on my own. Along the way, I bumped into this gentleman by the name of Glenn Francis, <laughs> who actually has changed my life over the last three years. I'm supposed to be semi-retired, but I think I'm working a lot harder now than I ever used to. But <laughs> that's the fun part, I guess. What Glenn did was that he's the founder of CIO Academy Asia. And I remember when he tried to get me on board, he put across this message to me, which I think up to today still resonates very strongly. He felt that there was a gap in the market. He felt that there were a lot of suppliers tech suppliers, but these suppliers were always having difficulties or challenges meeting the tech buyers. And he spent a lot of time with uh, associations and, you know, trying to put together communities. And he felt that uh, maybe to address this gap, why not form a company like CIO Academy, where we build a community around the tech buyers, meaning the key ones would be the chief information officers. And of course, today, it goes beyond CIOs, huh? It goes to the CDOs, the innovation officers, and the data officers. I mean, the list goes on, the, even the security officers as well. We felt that by forming a community around the tech leaders, we could share insights, uh, we could put together platforms, where we could bring uh, folks like, for instance, you, Bernard, you know, as you mentioned, you've uh, attended some of our platforms. And But in these platforms, we tried to create something different, you know, whether it's the place, in, like what you mentioned, we had the first uh, Connect Gulf in our flagship project, by the way, in Bhutan, and then the second edition was uh, in Mongolia, you know, the place was attractive enough to get everybody together. But during this gathering, we have good speakers, people who are what we call practitioners. And we really feel that it's important, especially with the pace of technology and things are moving so fast today, that a lot of the so-called tech leaders, I think the best way for them to learn besides uh, you know, what they do on a day-to-day -day basis at their jobs is to learn from their peers. Right, get quick updates from them. You know, understand what's happening in the landscape. Who are the partners to work with? You know, what sort of disruptive technologies will make a difference? Different functions of their work. That, for instance, is our main mantra actually. And I think we've been uh, like three years old already. We've been pretty successful. And another thing is that our community is based on the relationship that we have with each and every one of them. 
There's no membership. So the good thing about relationships is that, you know, if people like what you're doing, they'll come back. If they don't like what you're doing, they won't come back. So that in itself puts pressure on us to make sure that all the platforms that we create is exciting enough so much so that people spread the word around, you know, they'll look out for our next platform you know, or summit or whatever you may call it. So that in a nutshell is what we do. I just have to add this on is that if you want to get to meet people like Diane Green from Google or, you know, some very key executives from like big companies out there, Rama and Glenn are probably the two only people in Asia who have access to them and basically bring all of us to meet them. So it is pretty impressive from what you have done. And also, I think a lot of it was the network that actually allows a lot of facility, the exchange between people in the sea level to get with these uh, tech sellers as well. So, but today I'm here to talk about the main topic is a book that you've co-authored with Grace Chung, who's also a guest on the show too. It's called Intelligent Island. And this is probably an interesting book because whenever I'm out there, maybe I'm more critical of Singapore, but everyone tells me about the tech miracle that Singapore has become. And of course, the impressive GDP. So I probably should just start with the first question to you is, what's the backstory behind writing this book? You know, when I left the public service after three decades, I asked myself this one thing. I benefited a lot from being part of this journey. Very exciting. Roller coaster actually to a certain extent. I mean, the first two decades were plane sailing in the 80s and 90s. But when the turn of the century, I think Singapore went through a little bit of a slump, the dot com fallout. And then after that, the recovery. Today, you know, we are one of the tops in terms of uh, being a tech hub in Asia. When I left the public service, I told myself, no, this story is worth sharing, especially with the next generation of tech leaders because if it is not documented it will be something that will only exist in the minds of the people who are involved and then along the way it would have been completely forgotten one of my what they call bucket list (laughs) was that if there's anything i should do is that i should maybe write a story about it you know put it in the book but i could do couldn't do it alone you know i needed necessary support i was fortunate i had grace chen a very seasoned ST journalist who at that time in 2016 also stepped down from SPH. I shared with her, I had this thought about writing a book and she immediately jumped on it. She said she also felt the same way. So I said, yeah, why not? You know, this partnership may work, but like most projects, we re- needed somebody to commission the project. It was going to cost a fair bit of money. And we needed to get a pool of writers and there was a lot of time that we needed to spend, you know, conducting interviews, doing research and everything. Again, you know, I was fortunate enough, I uh, I met up with the folks from the association. At that time, they used to call SITF, but today it's called Singapore Tech, right? They changed their name. I met with Soken White, who was on the committee, and I shared it with Ken. Uh, and Ken, being part of the journey, as you know, Ken's background, he was, you know, formerly from the public sector, then he became a very senior person with Microsoft later. So he he immediately jumped on the idea and he said, yeah, you know, and he'll do his part to get Singapore Tech to support us and commission the project. And lo and behold, after 14 months of effort, Intelligent Island was launched. So I'm really proud that we've taken an idea to fruition. And today we actually have a book that could be used to tell a story, you know, this remarkable story about how Singapore in the 70s had to rely on technology as our force multiplier to make up for the lack of numbers in terms of manpower. And we created industry out of practically nothing. Credit given to all the people, if you have read the book, really proud that you can find it in the bookstores. <laughs> I think what would 
be interesting is to discuss the main teams behind Intelligent Island. I'm also probably one of the recipients of the work that was done three decades ago where Singapore started to decided to embrace technology. And I think uh, when I was at the age of nine, I actually got to touch my first Apple IIe computer. And that actually got me into computer science and particularly learning physics. What are the main teams behind the Intelligent Island? I, I know you alluded to history the historical part of how it built Singapore into a giant economy as of today. But it has a lot of other themes about like how it survived the dot-com crash and how it revitalized again itself in the modern day today where we talk about smart cities. Can you talk a little bit, elaborate a bit on that? Maybe the best way to describe how we put together the outline of the book is I relate a story to you. When we were marketing uh, Intelligent Island, I remember at uh, different, uh, at that time, Singapore tech platform, they used to have gatherings and, you know, we had to build up, you know, the whole expectations for the launch of the book. I remember going on stage talking about what we wanted to do. And when I stepped down, there was this veteran from the IT industry pulled me one corner and he said, you know, Rama, I really don't think that this is such a great idea, you know, doing the book. I said, why? He said, look, you know, who cares about what we did in the past? It's all passe. Technology moves so fast. What's important is now and moving forward. What has been done in the past? Well, good, we did it, but you know, so what? Are we just doing this book to glorify all the pioneers? <laughs> and I thought that was pretty good because it really got me thinking. And this is where I think I can talk about the book and the teams. To a certain extent, yes, he had a point about technology moving so fast and no point harping on the past. But I think he missed the point. The book was not about just talking about our technology and what we did. The book has themes about how it came about, the very dedicated visionary leaders, both from the government and the public sector, how we created a tech industry from nothing and how the multinationals and the local players came about. The third part of the team is all of entrepreneurship. So if you really look at it, it's about the government, public sector, about the private sector, and then about entrepreneurship. That's really the main themes covered in the book now. And then how it all connects with each other. And the book doesn't only talk about what was done, but we have done it in such a way, we have read the book, Bernard, you find that at different points, at different chapters, we have insets where we talk about defining moments, things that were done against all odds to make a difference and things that were done in a very bold, in a very risky way, which it had not been done that way. I don't think we would have such a healthy tech industry that is able to create jobs for so many Singaporeans and for us to be able to be also a nation who's generally quite tech savvy. So what are the major stories in the book chronologically that are key to the development of information technology in Singapore. Yeah, if you read the book, you'll find the first part is quite interesting, right? In the early 80s, when Economic Development Board wanted to create a, what they call at that time a computer services sector, the first question that was asked during the committee meeting, and it was covered quite well by Grace, is the question that was asked was, what is software? Can you imagine? <laughs> At that time, software was totally new term, you know. I mean, we take it for granted today. But at that time, the first question EDB asked is, what is software? And that led to creating the high, the whole sector, you know, the tech sector, which we see today. And the humble beginning was, we started off by asking this very basic question, what is software? So that was one part of the story, quite interesting, right? The second part of the story is that when Philip Yeo formed National Computer Board, he had only 800 IT professionals to start with and within a decade by the end of the 80s he had 10,000 how did he do it 
It's all covered in the book. Amazing things. It wouldn't have been done if we were not very single-minded. We didn't have you no know, leaders who are not only visionary, but also good at executing. Right, those stories really worth mentioning, and and you really think about it, right? Those are principles that can be applied today, you know. So it wasn't just about the technology; it's all it was all about the willingness to want to do something out of nothing. Third story was I like to bring it down to the private sector. If you read some of the stories of the IT pioneers like Johnny Moo, who was the first real tech entrepreneur in Singapore, actually he was the he formed a CSA, which was first locally uh, listed company. He had a very good job with IBM, and then he left, and he decided to take a chance. He took a big risk, you know, uh, going into a sector which was relatively new and created a company which was so successful eventually of course it got acquired and made a big difference to the whole local scene in terms of IT companies you know about entrepreneurs that you know you don't really need to only work with the multinationals you can come out on your own and and do something different start a business involving technology yeah so those all stories were, were covered i mean can you imagine the some of the Folks were saying that in the early days, you, you couldn't get much funding from anywhere if you wanted to start your company. And I remember it was, I think, Leslie Lowe, right? At that time, he started System Excel. He said that uh, he had to borrow money from his grandmother. And then he had three credit cards and he was shuffling between the, the three, you know, to pay the rentals, you know, for his office. Those are stories that are really worth sharing, especially with the younger generation of entrepreneurs. The, the folks then had to do things that were quite different they didn't really have the support system but they went against the odd and made a big difference a lot of it was also singapore as a nation where we have entrepreneurial leaders building the economy present state today by embracing technology what are the key lessons that the other asian governments or developing countries outside asia can learn from our experience in building our own technology infrastructure today I think the first question is that the the story, right? I mean, if you really think about it, it's really, some people really call it a miracle. Start with something that is just an idea. From an idea to reality, you can actually create something out of nothing. Tech sector is a classic example. But, you know, more importantly is that the whole system, the whole methodology, the whole single-mindedness behind it, I think it's something that's very admirable and it's something that I'm quite sure other Asian governments also can learn in terms of that nothing is impossible. If you feel that you have the right people and that even if you don't have the resources, like in the case of Singapore, manpower resources were, you know, very scarce, could still do something if you were creative enough. And one thing about the whole story in Singapore is that it was very sustainable. You know, so you need to have a government that has to be around long enough, have a good public sector that in spite of the politics, you can still carry on to do something economically that can make a difference for the country. So that point, I think, important, right, to share, you know, with uh, other governments in Asia. I mean, today we will probably think of a company like Razor or Garena C, which have both recently gone public. It's a new wave of technology companies that rise from Singapore, but actually has to cope with a pretty uncertain Southeast Asia market. But I have a thought-provoking question. It's a question that crops in my mind, and I think I've discussed this with a couple of people like yourself in private. I often felt that Singapore gave up on technology companies before they grew. So this is my impression from reading the book and also been thinking about maybe because I'm more reflective about how history could bring out the best and the worst in us. So I draw two comparisons. So I think in the 80s, we have charter semiconductors. 
which started at the same time as TSMC. And then we have NCS, which lost out to Infosys. And these companies actually started at the same time before Infosys and TSMC became very big. My question to this is, is it because of the nature of Singapore's market size that made it impossible for these kind of behemoth tech companies to emerge? Or is that just something else that we are not ready for that yet? So maybe, Bernard, before I jump in to talk about the thought-provoking question that you shared with me about local companies in the tech scene here in Singapore, I thought it's important to understand also one of the things that we are trying to put across in this book is that, you know, if you look at the first three decades, right, to a certain extent, I think the government in Singapore played a very strong catalytic role. And rightfully so, you know, I, I thought without their influence, I don't think we'll be where we are today because of that. They had visionary folks and, you know, they put together the right policies and don't forget even the infrastructure which we are enjoying today was things that they helped put together of course with the industry industry also played a very strong role but the first three decades i would say the government played a very primarily strong role in terms of putting the whole sector together moving forward i personally feel and now you know we're already talking about the smart nation i feel the industry should play a more dominant role i think the government has done a lot and it's time now for the industry to take a lead. So that's one part. Now, second part, I can't say much about chartered semiconductors, but I can probably share my views about NCS. And, and you mentioned just now that, you know, NCS actually had that opportunity to be as big or even bigger than Infosys because they, you know, they were both around around the same time at that, at that point. My thoughts are, okay, so, you know, it's very easy to always blame the market. I mean, we always say, yeah, Singapore's market is small and, you know, as such, you know, that is why, you know, that works against us. I think that's a no-brainer. I mean, we all know that, you know, for even up to today, our, our local companies, if they really want to make it big, then you can start off in Singapore, but you immediately, you know, that's why we use this term called born global. You've got to move out as, as quickly as you can. But I think if you compare the case study now, we're talking about NCS and Infosys. At that point in time, I think it was like late 90s or so, I felt the US market was very instrumental in terms of uh, making or breaking companies, tech companies. I thought Infosys had it right. They had all the right ingredients. There was a lot of work from the US market that was being outsourced to them. Some or other... Singapore companies struggle, and there are stories in the book also that talks about it. You know, we used to struggle, especially with the US market. And I think that also worked against NCS, right? Having a presence in the US market, I think uh, making it big, there was a correlation between the two, right? So that's one. The other thing that I felt was that I think also partly, and then I'm trying to link it back to the first three decades, right? You know, I think to a certain extent, many of our companies because they were just operating, the government was still one of the biggest users of technology and the biggest buyer of IT services. To a certain extent, I felt, if I may use the term, they were like protected when they had to wean them out from, you know, government tenders and then push them out on their own into the open market. I felt that there was an adjustment period. Some of them could adapt, some couldn't. And that could be also another reason, I think, which uh, worked against us. Yeah. So those are the two points I felt that were sharing. And also the ability to think about the market as a global. I mean, you, you pointed it out that today, a Singapore startup founder would be thinking go global on the first day. But maybe in that past three decades, people were not so convinced that they should go global on the first day. I, I hear this from the older generation when I talk to them. So do you see that mentality also shifted as well? 
That's right. Yeah. So in a way, we are, we are fortunate because I actually I have a lot of confidence in our new generation of entrepreneurs, you know, because and, and I think uh, the internet to a certain extent has changed the game because if you straight away, you know, develop a technology, you cannot avoid the fact that it has to use the internet and immediately you're going and you're competing on the world stage, right? So I think the new generation of uh, tech entrepreneurs, I think, I, I feel that uh, they would probably be in a better position now to grow global companies. So where do you see the next one, two decades be for Singapore as an intelligent island? Do you see it to be more expanding its reach beyond the shores or do you see that it's still going to be within its confinements but maybe tackling only the regional markets like Southeast Asia? I mean, our sovereign wealth funds are globally known whether it's GIC or Tomasic, right? They're everywhere. What about our companies as a whole? So if you ask me to compare, right, with the last three, four decades and, and moving forward for the next uh, decade or so, I won't go two decades, maybe at most five, ten years. I really feel that it's no longer just using technology, you know? I mean, if, if you were to compare Singapore in the old days in terms of the tech sector, we were very good at using technologies in a very innovative way. Moving forward, it's not just about using technology. It's about creating, having your own intellectual property, being able to have technical folks on your team, you know, who can do things differently, getting the various sectors to interdisciplinary kind of a domain approach, you know, coming together and doing things for our smart nation, which is our next leap, actually, beyond the intelligent island. Those things have to come in place and those things require people of all kinds of backgrounds, whether it's engineering, whether it's computer science, whether it's philosophy, archaeology, you know, people who are good at user interfaces, you know, coming together and creating something new. That is going to make a difference for us. If we can't get that done, I think we will be just a follower and not a leader in this space. Rama, thank you so much for coming on the show and share some of this really long history that probably could help us to reflect on what is going to be the future. So in closing, I have two questions. Can you recommend a book, podcast, movie, or anything that has impacted your personal or work life recently? I, I bought this book, Neither Civil Nor Servant, The Philip Yeo Story. I would strongly recommend this book to all Singaporeans. I really enjoyed the, reading this book, not only for the fact that, of course, I was fortunate enough to be working with uh, Philip Yeo in the public sector. But, you know, when you read the book, you realize how bold Philip Yeo is in terms of wanting to make a difference for the country. So he was actually an entrepreneur operating within the public sector. And the things that he did, even up to today, like, for instance, the Jurong Island, the tech sector, you know, all to a certain extent was his willingness to make it different, go against the grain. And because of those pioneering efforts that and vision that he had, we're enjoying you know, the fruits of his labor. I would recommend this book to all Singaporeans. I think it's so inspiring and it'll motivate us to even do more you know, in the near future. So how do my audience find you? Easy. Rama, another four-letter word, R-A-M-A at cioacademyasia.org. Right, drop me a mail. Feel free to share with me anything. I'll be very open to engage you. You can find me at Bernard Leung or at bernardleung.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A N A L Y S E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAS, 
SoundCloud and of course Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me and of course give us a five-star rating on iTunes feedback and of course a star on Overcast would be great. Drop me a comment from time to time. Rama, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Bernard. Really enjoyed the conversation. Cheers.